Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, listeners to the Global Marketing Show podcast. I'm so excited that you're here with us today. It's been interesting over this journey. I've done a lot of outreach to people that I've specifically wanted to have on the show because I thought that they could add a lot of value. Uh, Yet, recently, I've had people reaching out to me to be on. And so we've We've developed an application form that we've put on our website, rapporttranslations.com. And if you go to resources and look for the podcast, you can see the place that you can apply to be on the podcast. So if you have global marketing experience or international business and you can cover a topic that we haven't covered in an earlier episode, or you'd want to talk about some of your fun business experiences, certainly go to the website and apply. It'll also be in the show notes uh, down below. But enough about that. We're going to get to our guest today. Nick Layton, is, he's, he's got tremendous experience and he believes in champagne moments. And over the past 25 years, he's worked in North America, South America, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. And as a seasoned entrepreneur, he's founded and sold multiple multi-million dollar agencies and advised countless others, including Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits, small business, entrepreneurs, political parties, and, and even members of royalty. So this guy has been around. We'll even talk about where he met his wife, and that is really interesting. So now he owns and operates a coaching and peer advisory agency, an international marketing agency, and a project management company. So Nick, welcome. Hey, Wendy. Thanks very much for having me today. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. So I led off in that you believe in champagne moments. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us what that is? I like it. Great question. Absolutely. Well, obviously, we all love drinking champagne. But what is the champagne moment? So we're in business. And I think a lot of people who listen to your podcast probably own businesses or agencies or are working within agencies. It doesn't matter if you own an agency or if you work in an agency. There's always the question of why. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing our agency? Particularly, we also, I think a lot of people who are in manufacturing and consumer products and they're thinking about it. But if you are an agency owner, think about which clients of yours could do global marketing. So, sorry, right. I had to jump in. No, 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 no totally, in. totally. Go, go, go ahead. So, okay. So, so, let's say you fall into a, um, a manufacturing company. I don't know, maybe your parents owned it or whatever. Now you own this manufacturing and that's what you do. It doesn't matter what the business is, though. The question is, as the owner, why are you doing it? So the champagne moment is the first reason. It's your why and it's the celebration of your why. So people talk about your why quite a lot. I think that's a common conversation we have. But if you could do one thing on a personal level in the next year to two years, what would that be? So let me give you some examples and see if that um, kind of clarifies things. So I'm working with people right now who have all kinds of champagne moments. Maybe you want to buy your first home. If 
you're you know, new in the business. Maybe you want to build a second home in the country you were born in. Maybe you want to never have to work Fridays. Maybe you want enough time, money, and freedom so you can backpack around Asia for a month without anyone contacting you. Maybe you want to set up your business and have the money and the freedom so you can work for three months during the summer from a little chateau in France. Whatever your champagne moment could be, it's going to be personal and meaningful to you. And then that gives you the reason, your why, of how to run the business or how to work. Does that make a little bit more sense? Yes. And that is, it, it runs parallel to the why, the Simon Sinek why that I usually hear about is to mm. what's, what's your motivation for doing it? Like, like I like connecting people across languages and cultures. I mean, that mm -hmm. is my whole life. I've been doing that sort of land in a business for that. Why is really good, but you're right. I always have like a personal goal. Like, like when you said that at first, let me see, let me see how this one fits in is, mm -hmm. is I just feel like I should be doing so much more for the refugees in this world because mm -hmm. we have a lot of refugees that work for us and we provide interpreters for a lot of refugees that come to the United States that need interpreters for medical care or they need information from the government. And so I feel like I should be doing so much more. So that fits into the why of the company. Absolutely. That's a more Simon Siddick why. Mm -hmm. But my why is I want to retire in 10 to 15 years. And so mm -hmm. that's my goal to push the company to grow. Right. And you're absolutely right. This is the celebration of the Simon Sinek why. Um, I think that's the best definition um, of it. So maybe if all those things are important, your personal champagne moment could be the setting up of a nonprofit that allows support around that. But for you to do that, you need time, you need money from your business. Um, and you'd have all the connections from your business that would allow this to happen. But maybe that point is the launch of the, of the charity organization that gave in the humanitarian aid. I mean, I'm not suggesting you do that, but I mean, that's how people come to the champagne moment. So it could be a, and it's so book, great because you, uh, you really take my blinders off. Cause I was just thinking like, Oh, personally adopting a, you know, adopting for lack of a better word, a refugee family mm -hmm. and, contributing that way. But if you think about starting a nonprofit to help, you've just enlarged my vision. Well, just yeah. taking steps. I mean, and it doesn't have to be giving back necessarily. I mean, it's totally fine for it to be personal about you. So um, I work with someone who their most recent champagne moment was to get their son into college. That's totally legitimate as well. Absolutely. I need time yeah. and resources to be able to support that because that's the best thing for our family at this point. So it can be anything. And that's the beauty of it. And then every year you, you achieve it or every two years you achieve something and then you move to the next one. So it almost is like an annual personal. So it's like losing weight. You can't just say, I want to lose 10 pounds. You've got to have, so I feel healthier. So my pictures look better. So I can hike with my children. There's more to just the number on the scale. It's that and the internal champagne moment is that time where you can say, I did it. It's the celebration, which is really important. So it could be launching the charity organization, or it could be the photo shoot with whoever who is well-known because I've hit the weight and I feel amazing, and then I want to show it off. So there has to be a moment to it. Oh, a moment to it. Okay. Mm. So does that, you've done a lot of international business. Does the champagne mo moment 
convert over to thinking about global business, global oh, marketing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, and in so many different ways, but, you know, yes, we've done all kinds of work and we've done work with refugees and, and with uh, aid organizations. And, and that's how I came across the champagne moment in the first um, place. So I owned a, a marketing agency or media for specific around PR um, in the Middle East. And all our clients were technology clients. That's where we specialized. And that's where we had a lot of expertise and results. But we needed something extra in that agency to spark enthusiasm, to help us in recruiting, just to get us out of the day-to-day tech stuff. Um, so we took on the United Nations World Food Program. The World Food Program is owned by the United Nations, one of the largest charities in the world. And we did pro bono work for them. And this was great because everyone loved this difference. You could get all techie with our clients and know stuff, but then also you could do something that made a difference. And everyone wants that, especially in the marketing world. We all want to do things that make a difference. So this allowed us to do it more than just push a company's profit. We were raising money that gave children food. This was fantastic. So we were running um, an exercise, well, running a campaign with media from around the world. And, And what we would do is we would bring international media to the Middle East, and then we would fly them to an uh, area which needed aid. In this case, it was in Pakistan that we went. So we would show them opulence. We'd meet the prime minister or the president of whichever country we were in, and we would feed them well on day one. And then day two, we'd show them where the aid work was needed. And the juxtaposition for these journalists, international journalists from well-renowned publications, it would really hit home. And then hopefully they would report on that, and that would drive donations. That was our, our strategy. And we were doing that, and we were in a United Nations helicopter flying over the Kashmir region of Pakistan, and we were hijacked. We were the plane, the, the, the helicopter we were on was hijacked. Two F 16s were controlling where our helicopter went. And at that moment, bear in mind, I'm in charge of these international journalists. You know, we were told where to land and, and to put on the back of a truck and sent up to a refugee camp, which actually was run by the military police. So they, they didn't want to cause us harm, but they didn't want us to control the media voice. Um, I didn't tell the media during this time they were being hijacked. They had no idea. They just thought we were just going, ah, this is an uh, unplanned stop. Um, and once we'd done that part, we were allowed to go off and do our, our own thing. But it was at that moment as I was being hijacked, I'm like, you know what? This is my champagne moment for me right now. Even though, yes, we were in danger and we weren't 100% in control of what was going on, I was providing aid in an environment with the people I wanted for a greater good. I'm like, this is a champagne moment for me right now. Wow. Wow. They didn't know and you're celebrating a champagne moment. Did you ever tell them? I I did afterwards. Um, I didn't feel like they needed to know during the time because I I mean, the pilots were with us. We had a United Nations um, person with us. And then the photographer that I work with all the time, who I take to these events, I told him and and he was pretty calm. So that's cool. And we're like, you know what? Maybe, I mean, we talk about crisis communication all the time. Like maybe we're not going to lie, but we're not going to tell the whole truth at this moment. We're going to wait until the helicopter is taken off again. And we're in another location, um, which was fine. And obviously we didn't yeah. want to bring bad publicity to the area. Right. So, you know, we were controlling the message as well. Right, right. Wow. How calm you must have stayed. And then how did you get out of the hijack situation? So they took us up to this aid camp because they really wanted to show that they were doing amazing work. The military police were doing amazing work. So you know, we were a known commodity for those two days. You know, we, we'd been to these amazing places. So they knew we were there. They knew the press were with us. So in their minds, oh, we just show the press what we want to show the press 
it'll be good <laughs> so yeah literally you know we were given a cup of tea and we were allowed to walk around so or only so far in about you know for 15 minutes 20 minutes maybe and then they said okay go back on your truck and they took us back to our helicopter and our pilot was waiting there and we got things going again yeah <laughs> What yeah. an experience. That would be a champagne moment, particularly right. since you came out alive. And right, you, exactly. Yeah. That definitely <laughs> helps. Celebrate it, yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at yeah. the time, you thought, oh, this is a champagne I'm like, moment. I'm like, this is interesting. Even though it's clearly dangerous and I'm not in control, I am doing something that I really want to be doing. And, and that was the realization at that point. I'm like, well, okay, how do, how do we form that so people can, in advance, think about a champagne moment and then try and reach that champagne moment. Um, because frankly, goals suck. I mean, like who wants to run a business or be in business and go, I just got to hit the next million or the first million or whatever it might be. A revenue goal means nothing. So this just makes things more meaningful. Right, right. It does tie it back to that. So say, say, how did you, how did you get your agency to come up with the UN World Food Program? Because as you said before, somebody could say my champagne goal is to get my son into college. Mm-hmm. Yours mm-hmm. is to be hijacked with a bunch of press mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a place that well, is not know, safe. Right. You know, so everybody has such different levels of, you know, how much excitement they can handle. Right. Or right. some people are really into dogs rather than, you know, like save the animals right. and the dogs. So how do you how rally do you a team That's around awesome. one? Awesome. Well, first, so a champagne moment is individual. Um, I don't know if you could have a champagne. Well, I suppose you could for a team. I've never thought about that. But how do you work out what your personal champagne moment is? Um, and you've got to have a personal vision. So I think you can go through about 15 questions and find out what, what is your core. So, you know, why do you do what you do? Some people have that answer. Some people don't. What do you love doing? What don't you love doing? How much time do you want to spend doing it? What else is important to you? Money, maybe non-monetary rewards, health, family, friends, hobbies. Once you ask what's important in 15 areas, and you can write that down as in 100 words, it becomes pretty clear. So in my case, I didn't go to look to get hijacked, but I like traveling in out-of-the-way places. Um, I love everything to do with air travel hot air balloons, helicopters, gliders, planes. So those two elements were definitely there. I was a place in my life where I wanted to give and I was in a position where I could. And also that multiplier effect. I mean, you know, sure, we can all give in small ways, but how do you use your talents and the position you're in today for a greater good? So those three things were important to me and that's what led to the United Mm. Nations. Um, So that's what made it my champagne moment. I don't think you could say that anyone on my team, their champagne moment was to have been on that helicopter with me. that That's not what happened, but that's what made that champagne moment important to me at that time. Um, and as we go through life, how we go through businesses and things change, so your champagne moment's going to um, change. And, you know, it was only a few years later where I didn't want to go out. So, I mean, this is before I had children, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, once you have children and a family and a house, yeah, my champagne's moment, moments changed to writing a book, which mm-hmm. is, kind of polar opposite of the excitement of getting hijacked, for example. Yes, yes, right? <laughs> it is. We'll so there are get many into factors. that book later. Oh, that's but, but you were talking about your team when you were running mm-hmm. a PR agency in the Middle East, yep. that you picked the UN World Food Program. And mm-hmm. so obviously you were passionate about that and that came from the leader. How did the team get passionate about it? And- I think the 
back in, we were in Dubai in the Middle East. So, you know, it was quite a small environment and people were very business focused. Everything was very much, if you were an expat living in Dubai, your life was around work. You went there for work, you lived the work, you worked long hours and you might party hard outside of work if that was your chosen lifestyle. But there wasn't much else outside of the work environment. Dubai's infrastructure just wasn't there at that time. So we were just trying to find meaning. And as an agency with about a dozen people working there, you know, we would ask ourselves, okay, well, what can we do that's important? And, and we loved the technology clients that we had at that time. I mean, it, right. that was fantastic. We worked for major brands and, and that was great. But success for them was measured either in media exposure or in people turning up to an event or ultimately people buying a product, or I guess ultimately you know, getting out of a crisis or, or revenue growth or stock market performance. Um, and we could help in those areas, but we felt like we weren't really connected to people quite as much as we wanted to be. So we didn't want to lose the focus of the agency. We didn't say, oh, well, let's go general. You know, I, I'm sure if we were doing media for a restaurant, we might feel like we were supporting a, a restaurant and the family there. But um, we were just looking to see what would work and the opportunity of the United Nations came to us. Okay. Now your team there, were they an mm. international team or were they mostly uh, from the Middle East? So or? that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think that ties into very much what you do. The Middle East culture is very interconnected, but they're not connected at the same time. So in Dubai, you have English language newspapers and Arabic language newspapers. You get some other newspapers of other languages as well. The population breaks down between Western expats, and that's Americans and British and you know European expats who are there. You get Indian subcontinent um, expats, mainly from India, and then you get Arab expats. So you get Arabs who are from Dubai, United Arab Emirates, but you also get Arabs who come in from Jordan or Egypt. So those are three very distinct groups. They all have very distinct media that they read that are all written by very distinct journalists and editors. So I would have loved to have started my agency and had people I know and connect with very easily. I'd love to have other European expats with me. That would have been fun. But I quickly realized that we couldn't get results across the media landscape like that. So we would set up pods, which always had to have an Arabic first language, an Indian subcontinent, and a Western expat. So three very different people, because only then could that pod of people create results for all the media that was out there in our area, which of course led to difficulties because these are three types of people who may not socially get on. They probably don't have religious things in common. They don't have social or family things in common. There's a lot of differences. So it made the agency quite full of friction in a way because I, I constantly were putting people together who wouldn't necessarily choose to go together. Um, but it gave the best results. And that was a very interesting culture to create in an agency or in any business, because most people want to create an environment which is highly productive, but where people really enjoy it. And here I was creating something which was different. I, that wasn't my first objective. My first objective was to get results at a broad level. And for me to do that, I had to have many different types of people. So it was a challenge, but it, it, it worked out and we certainly got great results from it. Um, and I think I'd like to say that I created intercultural friendship that maybe wasn't there because Dubai really is a culture where you stay within your own group, where it was back then anyway. It's so interesting right now because in the U.S. particularly, DEI is just skyrocketed of, of interest is you have mm -hmm. to have diversity, but mm -hmm. 
if you don't have equity, people aren't going to stay. Well, it's more about equity. It's about inclusion. And so you started with inclusion and that drove the rest of it because, and you were focused on results. Mm -hmm. So you Mm -hmm. had to do it in that situation. And I hear that frequently is that it can be full of friction, but the outcomes can be so much better. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what think, year you know, were you doing this? So we started the HTML in 1999. So, you know, for a good seven or eight years, that's how we were running things. Yeah. 1989. 1999 is when we started. 99. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So diversity was around, but it wasn't as talked about or front and center as it is today. What fantastic right. experience. What advice would you give to people that are trying to build you know, you know, you know uh, and, and I speak at all kinds of places and often we have to talk about diversity. I, I don't think that's something that can or should be forced. I, I, I think people who, who talk about it a lot now, we've got to have diversity. Well, why do you have to have diversity? For what reason do you want? I mean, are we just proving it for numbers? You know, is it? And then why would one diversity over another make more sense? I heard an organization saying that they must get more female members into it uh, recently. And I'm like, okay. But I understand what your organization is about. And first of all, the question is, are female members representative to your area? And then why are you saying female members over a religious group, a background, a color, anything else? Why choose one diversity? You can't. I mean, that's just like, you know, just tell us where, what, what's the reason? So is it to hit numbers? Yeah, to me, it's fascinating. Different people have different strengths. So find the right people with the right strengths. That's where we came from. It resulted right. in diversity. But I don't know. Should every company have equitable diversity? Because it's fair, yes. But is that going to give the best business results? I don't know. If you ask me to rank every country I've ever been to mm-hmm. in hospitality, and if I could choose a country that I think has the best hospitality, let's say it's Thailand. And if I then had a company that had customer service, I'd want lots of people from Thailand to work there. It's not necessarily positive diversity. I'm just trying to find the people with the best strengths. Right. So I, I you know, diversity is a, a, a big topic right now. I, I don't know if I agree with everyone on diversity is great. And I, I hear what you're saying. Yet a lot of the research that I've read is now like McKinsey has a famous report out on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they're they're talking about the companies that are inclusive. They have, they continually pay attention to the things that might weed out candidates because they're not the norm. Mm -hmm. That when they can bring that in, they're more creative, they're more profitable, have Mm -hmm. higher revenues, and they Mm -hmm. keep people longer. Mm-hmm. So it makes a real business and, and they're at, you know, full employment. They're not scrambling to find, you know, tech workers or right. people who work in manufacturing. So mm-hmm. I see it with manufacturers that we work with. The HR department is calling us to provide translation or interpreters for their people who work on the manufacturing floor with really mm-hmm. good jobs mm-hmm. that they can't speak English. So those kind of tell me that diversity helps companies absolutely absolutely 100% agree with you and, and and i've seen that study and read that study as well um yeah so i think maybe what i'm saying is exclusion shouldn't exist don't exclude people for no reason whatsoever i mean just because oh. 
Right. I, I, I like the idea of inclusive. I just don't know if you can go out and promote inclusiveness over anything else. So yes, there's definitely, if there are barriers to promotion because of someone's gender, that should definitely be got rid of. How, how, do, how do we eradicate that issue? How do we eradicate and make it equal depending on someone's background or language that they can work in any environment? Totally 100% behind that. Mm-hmm. And just against the, we must go and hire someone from this minority oh. to balance numbers, right? No, no, you absolutely can't do that because then you're making numbers and you've not built an inclusive. I mean, you were very good, you know, when you were talking about it, our objective was to get results. Mm -hmm. And so if you pull people in to get results, but then you're making your hiring practices fair, like there's all sorts of studies on little micro things you can do that are eliminating a bunch of candidates before you even get in there. Now, isn't that fascinating? Because in the US, obviously, there's a lot of tight controls over recruiting. When I had that team in Dubai, there was zero controls around how to find and recruit people. So, I mean, I, I, could, I could have asked any question anytime. I could literally post an ad back then in a newspaper and I could say, I'm looking for a female worker between the ages of 22 and 25 that has blonde hair. I could write that. Right. <laughs> and then people would send in their resumes with pictures. I mean, right. um, and in fact, a lot of places ha- you can still do that in, right. in countries. Yeah. Right. And I can tell you, I mean, knowing all the information that a very famous airline from that area recruited that way. And my friend was happened to be the son of the HR director and they'd get the resumes in. And he was the first person he'd look at the picture and say, attractive goes to this pile. And then his sister would look at their resume and go, speaks a second language, can go on to be considered. Two criteria. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. They built a very, very successful airline based on that. Because you get all the businessmen flying on it. <laughs> the, the straight businessmen, excuse me. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is that, but how many of those pretty women were actually promoted up into senior leadership or were yeah. they held in Good the question. roles because they, yeah. Good question. Good question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. So you ended up in Dubai, but we can obviously tell you're not from there. Right. So yeah. tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, Where did you start? Yes. So I grew up mostly in the UK and worked for companies in the UK, and that was super fun. Um, and then I got headhunted in a very roundabout way to work for an American technology company. And um, I went for the interview. Um, I didn't actually, I wasn't actually looking for a job. I just went for the interview for fun to help out a friend who needed to put so many candidates in front of his client. And uh, the job that, that he wanted me to go and interview for was a marketing manager based in the UK, for the UK and South Africa. But it was based in a city called Slough. And Slough is known as the armpit of England. It is where, if you ever saw the the program, The Office, um, which is based on the English one, The Office, that's where that office is. It's there, right? Which is not the most desirable place to go to work. So I went for the interview and they said, well, what job have you come for? And I said, well, what jobs have you got? Because I didn't really care. I had a job. And they go, well, they've got the marketing manager based in England. Or we've got this other position, which is a marketing manager for Eastern Europe and the Middle East. I'm like, yeah, that's the one. And because I didn't really care. And I'm like, well, I had never been to Eastern Europe or the Middle East, but 
why would that stop me? And I still wasn't interested. So I got interviewed and then they called me the next week and they said, Hey, Nick, can you come to Munich to meet some of our team in Munich for the day? I'm like, sure. So they flew me to Munich for the day from London and I met people in the team. And then I went back. I'm like, interesting. Still don't want the job. Then they uh, phoned me up again and they said, Hey, Nick, can you come to Paris next week for the day? I'm like, okay. So I went to Paris for the day. And as I was flying back, obviously, you know, they were courting me. So I was flying back business class with a glass of champagne and I'm flying into England, which was cold and rainy. And, and, you know, there was gridlock around me as I was flying in. I'm like, you know what? This job doesn't seem so bad. They're going to fly me around in business clubs. Little did I know that wasn't the case. So I took that job and they located me in Paris, um, which was fun, um, a lot of fun. But I did point out to my boss at the time that Paris was not in Eastern Europe or the Middle East. And maybe I should go and work in the region. So she said, that's good. Good idea. Where do you want to go? I said, well, we've got a big office in Prague. So I should go there. So she said, fine. So I moved to Prague and I managed to find people to work for me and agencies throughout um, Eastern Europe. But after a couple of years, I realized the Middle East, I just couldn't find anyone. So I'm back to my boss. So wait, so when you're living in Prague at that point, were you doing all business in English? Like you only speak English, right? So um, we would, so my region top languages were Polish, Czech, Hungarian, Turkish, English and Arabic. Yeah. So we were doing marketing in all those languages, um, occasionally a little bit of Romanian, um, but we wouldn't go into like the Latvian, Lithuanian kind of languages. So those are our main languages. We did everything in. So I had a lot of translators and, every, you know, advertising campaigns were produced in every language and all that kind of thing. Um, so no, I don't speak those languages. I learned Czech when I lived in Czech Republic, but I became incredibly good at proofreading in a language I don't understand. Really? Uh, yeah. So yeah. Oh, teach me how to do that. But, well, <laughs> no, because you know it intrinsically because you see things like Turkish, you see Turkish, you know, if you do work in Turkish and you're like, hang on, this is not a Turkish accent, you know, and then, then you'd read something in, you know, French or, or, or in Czech or Polish and you're like, okay, hang on, that does not work for that. I just know that. Send yeah. that back to translate to double check it. Right. So there's a lot of that that went on. Um, yeah. Fact, and I, 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 and I understand what you're saying because mm-hmm. there's, you get to know that German capitalizes their nouns, not the first letter of the sentence right. and exactly. which languages need the upside down question mark at the front yes. of the, yeah. So there's a right. lot you can pick up without yeah. reading mm-hmm. the text to signal yeah. there might be a, an issue with this. That's a, right. yeah. Yeah. Good point to bring up. Yeah, we yeah we use internal teams as well, and and then for translators um, across that region. So yeah, it was a lot of fun working in multiple languages. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And so, how did you how did you find a translator that you could trust the quality? That was it. Was very hard back then. It was re- the only thing in my advantage is I was playing a game that a lot of other tech companies were playing. So. I was a marketing manager from Western Europe in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And a lot of other tech companies were growing so quickly, they had the same thing. So there was a small group, about a dozen of us, we were all marketing managers for a tech company. And we'd all see each other at the same tech shows and we're inevitably around in the same cities at the same time. Some of us were, you know, some of us were based in Germany and some were based in Czech Republic, some were based in France and we're in the UK. But we'd always meet each other, even though we came from maybe competitive companies and we would just share stories and share resources. Um, so that's a lot of how it happened back then. Um, you know, we're talking about times where, you know, I think we might have had a Lotus Notes database of what hotel to go to. I don't think we could even look that up online, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, this is a trusted hotel. I mean, yeah, we had no idea. We, it was, you know, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, then as soon as you found some good people, you 
kept them close and gave them as much work as you could. So right. they stay with you. Um, right. But, and then there was, and this is your world. And that's, that's why I love what you do so much because you've got to be so patient with people. There is no right translation. And, you know, there's I, so definitely I, a wrong translation. Yeah, there's definitely a wrong <laughs> translation. You're right. But, you know, way back then, you know, I translate World Wide Web into, you know, to Arabic. And there were probably six or seven legitimate ways of doing that. And so, yeah, there was, it was very much a system. And I'm sure you have these kind of systems in place yourself, your clients, where, you know, we had, we had brands and, and storybooks for each products and each country. So even if we had changed translations, you know, we could tell this is the way we do it here about this. And, you know, it, it was a lot about processes. Right. And a lot about keeping glossaries too, or translation mm -hmm. memories. So if you've done yeah. World Wide Web one way, mm -hmm. it's best to stay consistent as in any yeah. marketing communications. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So when you were young, did you have a lot of exposure to other cultures or languages? Yeah, I was actually born in Greece. Uh, my parents happened. So I kind of spent the first couple of years in Greece and then um, grew up most of my childhood in the UK. But I went to a boarding school um, in England. Um, in fact, at an early age, about seven or eight, people diagnosed that I had dyslexia. So kind of the jokes on everyone else that I now proofread in English when I'm dyslexic, but whatever. So I went to dyslexic school, which is kind of like going to Hogwarts if you've ever seen any of the Harry Potter movies. Similar to that. Um, we really? didn't have moving staircases, fun. but yeah, but it was pretty spooky and, and old school. Were you uh, Slytherin or? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, whether sorting hat would put me, but um, yeah, it was very much schools like that and, you know, competing internally against the other, you know, houses and yeah, it was just like that. So that gave me a lot of exposure to other people in England, you know, going to boarding school is desirable it isn't in some cultures but there were a lot of people who were sent to boarding school from outside of the uk um, mm -hmm. a lot of commonwealth countries for sure but you know i certainly met you know people who've been sent there from the us or from africa or from asia you know that middle east that was not uncommon so you know and i don't know maybe boarding school promotes this or maybe they were ignorant to it you know they put someone from israel and someone from pakistan in the same room together and they're like oh get on with it you'll figure it out it's like, it's like <laughs> so yeah it was a lot of understanding of different cultures in, in a very small close community okay so you didn't did you have any fears about setting off to prague to work or then later on no not at all i mean and that, that maybe is a european outlook it's you know family holidays are always okay we can either go in the car and drive to another country or we'll just fly somewhere so yeah that was never an issue yeah the fact i'd never been to prague and i was going to relocate myself there was ridiculous yeah i mean foolish and we you know i every every time i travel every week i'd go to a different country and i'd come back to prague and i'd go into the into our office and the guys would say to me how much did you pay for the taxi this week because this was always the running joke, how much check and how much you sound like check was how much you'd get charged for the taxi from the airport into town. And like through the two years, gradually it went down and down and down and down, and probably to a third of the price from, you know, when it was just visiting. <laughs> but yeah, oh yeah, it was, um, yeah, and we would get in cars and go to crazy countries and then cities and walk around at night. And yeah, it was probably shouldn't have done all those things. That'd be my guess. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, I've had other people on the show that grew up in the United States with no exposure to other languages and cultures and the fears that can bring up and realizing people are people. 
And so just being right. open to that, they've been able to right. work through their fears and have good stories, but you got right. an early exposure to that with right. people or people. And even Eastern Europe, I mean, you know, I got into car chases in Moscow and craziness, you know, I, I met someone recently and there was a time where I was in, um, wait, 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 you can't just slide that oh. in and go on to oh, the next could, door. A, uh, a car chase I in Russia. Into, okay. So everywhere's different. Everyone has different cultures. So this is obviously before Uber existed and Lyft and things like that. And I came out of a club at one o'clock in the morning or something. And I had three friends with me, um, who were Arabic and we had a, someone else was, who's from Moscow. And he said, look, I'm going to get you back to your hotel, but we don't have regular cabs here. We just stopped the first car that's going past. We asked them which direction they're going. If they're going the right direction, they're just going to take you. And we're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, just you know, give them $2 at the end of the ride. It'd be fine. So the guy stopped two cars and he goes, look, this car's going in my direction. I'm going to take this car. This car's going in your direction. So you guys get in this one. So now we're in this old clapped out larder or whatever Russian car it was. And there's a driver who we have no way of communicating with. Um, me and three friends, one guy's in the front. I'm stuck in the middle in the back in this old car. And we're going really pretty fast down these cobblestone, large lanes where you see like the old pictures of Russian um, soldiers marching. And then from nowhere, this other car comes in and pushes us onto the wrong side of the road. It's black Audi. So, and it's playing with us, not allowing us to get onto the right side of the road. It's just like playing with us. So now we have oncoming traffic passing us on both sides and it's one o'clock in the morning. So I'm sobering up very quickly. And then suddenly I hear sirens and I can see blue flashing lights kind of reflecting off the windows as we're driving along and the Audi then disappears. And I'm thinking, well, this is good because one, I'm not going to die tonight. And two, if there's a police car and it stops our car, we probably are in the right. I'm just thinking there's only so much trouble I can get into here, right? And I look around to try and find where this police car is and there's no police car. We're in the police car, we're in an unmarked police car. And the driver had just turned on the sirens and the blue lights to get rid of the other car. Not a word is said in this whole car. I'm looking at my friends, they're looking at me. And about two minutes later, we pull up at the hotel we're staying in and we give the guy $2, the undercover police guy. And he goes, thank you, see you. That was it. Wait, thank you, see you in English? Yeah, 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 this, oh, yeah, totally in English, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it, yeah. English. Yeah. It was a police car. None of you knew that. And he had, no, it, no so idea. you have no idea what the black car was trying to do to you. Nope. Don't know if they knew each other, didn't know each other. If they realized an undercover cop, I have no idea. But I just love that an undercover policeman would just stop and make two bucks on the side as well. I mean, that just seems great. Yeah. Okay. So if you're a listener out there and you're thinking about doing global marketing, <laughs> Nick's experiences are not the norm. Of course they are. Okay. No, aren't they? Isn't that no. what everyone goes through? No, 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 no. They talk about trying different foods or you having oh, bad manners, but right. being, yeah, high speed chase at 1 a.m. in Moscow or uh, being okay. hella, hijacked in a helicopter. That's not normal. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what yeah. is normal, but I can tell you this is definitely very normal. So, okay. um, you, so you get shared experience. You meet people after you've traveled who've been traveling at the same place at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I, was, I used to go in and out of Warsaw a lot and I used to stay in one hotel right in the center. And that's where the trade shows were. And it had a little like cafe out the front. And just because I went in and out so much and, you know, people in my own team and we talk and we realized there was a girl who would sit in the cafe and she would wear a different color wig every day. You know, she'd be born one day, then a red and then a brunette. And my guess is she was selling stuff. I don't know. So Selling stuff? I, 
<laughs> or selling herself. I don't know what, you know, she was always there. So, know. <laughs> okay. Um, I just wanted to make sure right, I understood. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and then I met someone maybe 10 years later who had also went in and out of Warsaw. And he's like, yeah, do you ever say that hotel? I'm like, yeah, I say that hotel. Did you ever see that woman who changed her hair every, I'm like, yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> Amazing. This is one individual, but randomly you can meet other people who have the same experiences. That's kind of fun. That is hugely fun. And I have heard that. I heard uh, in an earlier interview, somebody who was over in the Middle East and he was there, he sold like farms meat Mm -hmm. and he was there with another American and they found out like they were from the same county back from the Midwest (laughs) state. So Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of small world stuff when you're, you're doing international business. Yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're living in uh, Prague. How did you get over to Dubai? So same conversation with my boss. I'm like, you know, when I was in Paris and I wasn't really being able to do all the work that was in the region, I'm like, well, now I got the Eastern Europe is sewn up. We, you know, I've got people in different offices for me. I've got agencies working for me. Life's good. Middle East, not so good. Like can't find the people. So I think I need to go to the region. So she looked at me and she said, uh, I didn't know you could speak Turkish. I'm like, no, 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 not Turkey. I want to go to the Middle East, the Arabic Middle East. And she's like, do we have an office down there? I'm like, yeah, we have one in Dubai. She's like, okay, then go for it. It was that simple. Um, and I got there and this was way back before anyone had heard of Dubai. So, you know, we had like a dusty office. I literally, you know, sat what year on was this? 96, 97, around about then. Um, okay. So this is before Burj Arab, the big hotel. I have, I have pictures of the Burj Arab half in construction. Um, mm. This is before they started building islands and the world and things like that. Um, this is before Dubai Internet City existed which is such a driver for that region. So I worked for that tech company um, for a couple more years until they want to move me again back to Paris. And, and I said, no, I, you know, I think I've had enough, but I'm going to start my first agency in the Middle East. And that really was the driver. I was, it wasn't anything spectacular. It was right person, right place at the right time because I started an agency. I spoke to the 12 people who always were my marketing manager friends, picked up amazing work from day one. And then nine months later, Dubai started their expansion and they announced Dubai Internet City. And here I am with a technology PR agency in the Middle East set up, ready to go. And all these companies suddenly hit the, hit the region. And it was just very lucky. Okay. So you were somebody who understood Western marketing in a region that went through explosive growth and you knew marketing and how to connect with all, mm-hmm. all the different mm-hmm. people. So what recommendations would you give to people who want to enter a new market, either, you know, the Middle East or Europe or old Eastern Bloc countries or Western Europe, or, you know, I I mean, there's so many out there. How do you pick where and how do you start? So I think there's, there's there's probably a few things. Obviously, it depends on what type of company, product, services. Um, Obviously, we talk about a product, there's a lot of understanding that needs to be taken off, you know, talk about electronic product, then, you know, do you have the same power? Do we have the same sockets? You know, wall sockets. There's all kinds of things you'd have to know. For a service industry, less so. It's actually easier now than ever to have conversations with people in other countries. So I would see who can you find in that, in a suggested target country that you could speak to as an insight. So I was actually talking to a marketing agency, digital marketing agency based in California earlier this week. And he said to me, I'm thinking about doing some work in the Middle East. I have, some, I have a couple of Middle East clients already, so I'm thinking maybe we should open an office there. Should I? And I said, 
I don't have the answer for you, but here's the name and address of the person who writes, who's the main editor for the marketing magazine in the region. Why don't you go and ask them? Because they'll have all the information for you. Um, so that's normally what I'll say to someone. It's like, okay, if you, know, if you have a manufacturing company and you're considering Eastern Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary is the three largest countries, go and speak to whoever writes the marketing, the, the manufacturing magazine in those three countries. What information can you get from them? Editors and media is changing rapidly, but those traditional editors know everything. And in a small country, in, in Europe, we have also many small countries. Let's, you know, let's think outside of the UK, Germany, France. Probably everyone knows everyone in some of those countries. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. So just go to the, where that fountain of information is um, and find out everything you want to find out. And people are so open because for some reason, people love coming opening their arms and inviting people in from other countries i've seen that everywhere um and i'm you know you've said it yourself you know like oh, maybe i can ad adopt you know a family or whatever it is we all want people from outside oh come and stay with us yeah come and visit that'll be great that's how it is in every country hmm. so yeah i'll ask them the questions interesting some people who want to come into the united states listen to the podcast and so you gave a great suggestion Talk to the traditional editors of the marketing magazines in the country. What would be the marketing magazine for the U.S.? Or how would you figure out? And then the next question is, and how do you figure out what the marketing magazine is for each country? Uh, you know what? I think you could pretty much Google that. I don't know for any country. But that's if you're a marketing agency and you want to move to the U.S., Speak mm -hmm. to, but you know, if you're a manufacturing, then go and speak to someone who's running one of the manufacturing magazines. If you're in logistics, speak to someone who runs a logistics magazine. That's what I would suggest really is someone who understands whatever industry you're in for your business. And they've probably had conversations. They probably know. So yeah, I don't know. What is the main magazine? I don't know. Magazine, the whole media landscape has changed so radically in the last three, four years. I, I, and I yeah. don't do media in the US. I can't, I can't answer that question, but I'm sure we can find out. Yeah, the only one that comes to mind is the American Marketing Association. I don't know if they have a magazine anymore, but mm -hmm. I, they certainly do emails with tons of content. Right. That's Wasn't there a campaign magazine at one stage? And, you know, I'm sure. Direct marketing, sure. DMA. Right. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah, but that's, I think the concept still works. So even if it's hmm. not a magazine, go to your industry association in country and talk to the lead person there. Yeah, I like the idea of media people over associations because they have no vested interest in you know if you go to an association chances are it's member-led so that could uh, be a capacitor it might not be such a large knowledge of the person you're speaking to they might because you know they have a limited amount of time and they're running a business and all that kind of stuff you go to the media the media thrive on speaking to other people so that's what i like about that solution Oh, okay. That's a, that's a great idea. I see that little twist on it. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And so now marketing agencies, so many of them just stay in country. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, what do you recommend for agencies that are local or in their own country? Cause a lot of them don't realize they think, well, if I don't speak the language, I can't proof the material. I can't create. What do you recommend for agencies? Well, Let's bust that myth, first of all. I mean, you can get talent, whether that's full-time or go to someone such as yourself and get language. So, you know, I mean, at any given time, the agency that I run is 
working in French and Spanish and Portuguese and German at any given time. We have translations in, in those areas going on. It's it's like, that's just normal. So that's fine. English as a first language is used in a lot of countries, particularly in the business environment. So you can get, a, if you speak English, you can get away with a lot. And then it only takes a few words of another language for the socialization and the whatever. So while I was going through Eastern Europe, I didn't know any one language very well, but I could speak you know, critical 15 words and everything with the right. Oh, go ahead. Give me the words. Give me the words. Left and right. Left and right. So if you're in a taxi, you can give them directions. It doesn't sound like you're a tourist. Um, Two beers, please. Because you need to know that word. And I was traveling. I was very young and single. So are you over 18 was a very good sentence. No as well. Um, Apart from (laughs) that, you know, you could pretty much get away with anything. Um, So... Thank you and excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's all good. That, that, that's good. But you could you could pretty much know that in French or in or Italian and use it in any in any place. Wouldn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Oh, chair. Bathroom, okay. bathroom or Bathroom's toilet good. would be the yeah. other one. Yeah, I toilet. guess toilet goes across every oh, place. Toilet, WC. How many different ways can we say it? That's always like the the most confusing thing. It's like, how do we, how do we, what do we call it in this country? Let me get that right. Yeah. Um, there was yeah. a funny story on one episode about the restroom and they, mm-hmm. they pointed to like a comfortable chair over in the right. auditorium. You can rest there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somewhere where I could just take it easy. Okay, good. Got it. That's what the restroom is. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so anyway, going back to your question about, you know, how do you get into other countries? I'm a big believer in, um, and that's often, that's really one of the success stories of, our Middle East agency was we would um, go up against global brand agencies all the time. And we weren't, we were a Middle East focused agency. And every time at the beginning of our life cycle, we would lose to big brand agencies because for some reason that was more trustworthy. But then after a year, they'd often come back to us and go, you know what, although there's that large brand, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors and really it wasn't an integrated team or big enough or in the region, I understand the region. So um, we had realized we had to overcome that. Mm-hmm. How do we overcome fighting a, very, a, a large global brand? And, you know, personal seller or Helen Knowlton or whoever it was at the time, you know, would go into that pitch and they go, yes, we are 600 people in 30 countries. And that was it. They'd set the stage. We'd come in and go, hi, I'm Nick. And I've got 11 employees and we're in Dubai. They'd never go with me. So we joined a network and the, we were PR agencies. We, we joined a network of PR agencies. And the next day I went into a pitch and I'm like, hi, yeah, I'm Nick. Net results. We have 12 people in our team and our network has 300 people in 20 other countries. And that was it. We overcame it straight up from day one, just being part of a network. So whether you could do it through association or network, huge, huge bonus. Okay. And so what network did you join? Um, a network doesn't exist right anymore. Um, okay. So, and throughout the lifestyle of that agency, we were members of a number of different agencies and networks, um, which have worked for us at the time. So that was great. And then if we had a relationship with a client and they suddenly said, oh, and we've got an event going on in whatever other country. We call up a person in the country, go, hey, could you handle, you know, feet on the ground? And yeah, then it was never an issue. Okay. Yeah. So the only network I know right now for communications agencies is TAN, TAN worldwide, TAN or Uh TAN, however Mm -hmm. your accent would say it, Mm -hmm. T-A-A-N worldwide. And I spoke to the executive director uh, the other day, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was really impressed with the membership that they have there. So if anybody yeah. else uh, knows of any, certainly send them over to me and we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. It's, I think um, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, if you're t- talking just PR, then today we're part of, of a network, uh, which is PRGN, 
Public Relations Global Network, and they have great connections around the world. Um, and that's fantastic. So, you know, if there's going to be suddenly a press conference in Munich, I'm going to call up the guys in Munich or yeah. the girls in Munich and go, okay, you know, what do I need to know? All right. We have about five or six minutes left okay. and we still have to talk about what you're doing now, your book, how mm -hmm. you met your wife, your mm -hmm. favorite foreign word and okay. your favorite vacation. So we're going to spit fire through some Ooh, questions. My goodness. Okay. Let's do it. I'm ready for uh, the, the fire round. Let's do this. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. So tell us about how you met your wife. I met my wife. I was living in Dubai um, and Dubai is a very poor place for socialization. And I would travel a lot as part of the entrepreneurs organization at the time. And so I'd go to their universities. We were in different cities and around the world. And I went to an event at Los, in Los Angeles and one of the evening events, they'd hired the Playboy Mansion, if you happen to Playboy Mansion back then. Um, so that's where I was. Now, when you, when you hire that Playboy Mansion, I think you can anymore because I think you sold it. But back then, you would hire the venue, then you'd hire your food and beverage, and then you would hire bunnies to be there. And your bunny menu was based on how much they didn't wear and when they were in the issue. So the entrepreneurs organization being a very sensible organization with many amazing female members said, well, we better not make this too risky because we might offend someone. So we will have six girls wearing black cocktail dresses. Everyone was happy. So here we have 450 members of EO at the Playboy Mansion, 200 of which are probably looking to see if they can find a bunny because um, they've never been there and who knows, yeah. And so I'm hanging out and um, I'm hanging by the, by the bar and it's all very cool. Hugh's in the window waving and doing his thing and famous people at the bar because the bar was always open for famous people. Um, just outside the grotto and this girl looked over to me who was marrying a black cocktail dress. like, can you get me a drink at the bar? Because I was between her and the bar. I'm like, absolutely, here you go, here's a drink. Um, and I looked at her and everyone at the organization, entrepreneurs organization, everyone who's a member had a badge Hi, my name's Nick. I'm in public relations and I come from the Middle East. I mean, that's pretty much what I said. So you could have a conversation with anyone. She was not wearing a badge. And I said, oh, you don't have a badge on. She says, no, that's because I work here. I'm like, oh, what's your name? She said, well, my name is July 98. And I looked at her thinking that's probably not her real name. And a lot of people were taking pictures with her. Um, so I got to talk to her and I'm like, well, so were you really in July issue of 98? She's like, oh, no, I just gate crashed. I'm like, oh. Um, and I'm like, okay, so yes, um, well, actually she wouldn't admit today that she gay crashed uh, a few years later, but she was kneeling down in the back of the catering truck to get into the premises. So I'm pretty sure she gay crashed. Um, so that's where I met my wife. Um, and we dated internationally dated, which is very fun. So long distance, she was in oh. Southern California and I was in Dubai and for a year we dated and, and we met in many places in between because everywhere is in between. And Bangkok she and London, I learned from you in our previous call that mm -hmm. she's a successful uh, business owner. She's a very so you say person. gate crash, but you know, for a little interpretation, we'd say in American English, party crashers. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yes, no, no, that's that's a good term that I should probably take on. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. that is just hysterical. I love that mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are you doing now? And tell us about your book. I wrote a book called Exactly Where You Want to Be, A Business Owner's Guide to Passion, Profit, and Happiness. Um, so I've taken the experience of running my agencies. And then since I sold that my main agency in the Middle East, I also started coaching um, other companies. Um, so this is an accumulation of how to run a company, but also have fun doing it, which goes back to the champagne moment. So everything centers around the champagne. Why am I in business? What makes this fun? 
and how can I make money and have the freedom I want? Most people get into mm -hmm. business for certain reasons. Often high up on there is the freedom. But then after some time, they get so pulled into their own business, they've lost the freedom. It seems ex exciting and attractive to leave a job when you work for someone else. So you have control over your time. But then as your business becomes successful, you get pulled in and you're suddenly working 10 hours a day. So how do we reverse that? How do we have a business and still have a life? Hmm. So that's, that's what the whole book is focused on is bringing in processes, outsourcing, but having a structure, knowing how you're doing all that. So that's what the book looks at, how, you know, how to make the most, most of marketing, how to make the best of sales, how to have the best people around you, how to manage those people, how to hire people, how to have freelancers, all those, all those kinds of things are covered in that. That's fantastic. I'm going to have to get that. And I know a number of business owners I can mm. share that with. So right. we'll pass that along yeah, and we'll... Uh, mm. And that's exactly what I do my coaching, right? It's um, yeah. so the coaching is I work one-on-one -on -one with business owners. The majority of people I work with are in the agency space because that's my background. So mm -hmm. let's not say I don't work, you know, I have, you know, home services and you know, a lawyer and a couple of other places, but for agencies, it makes sense. We can talk the same language right. and more like an easily coach someone who has a civil engineering business or mm -hmm. a metal manufacturing company. Both those are examples of people I have coached they're using different words right. and I can learn the words, mm -hmm. but for an, in an agency, we talk the same thing. You know, so if someone says, someone said to me yesterday from an agency that they wanted to choose the type of work within their agency. So they wanted to be able to delegate a certain amount and do some work. And, and I could just straightforwardly say to them, are you saying it really the type of work or do you really mean the, the type of client? And just little nuances like that. Right really make a difference. Um, you know, right. if you're going to invest in coaching, you want someone who knows your industry. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. I'll share that around uh, some creative. Well, I'll share the whole episode because it's a whole thing about breaking down those blinders that I started at the beginning for people who are mm -hmm. my agencies. Okay. Favorite foreign word. What, champagne. Would that count? <laughs> um, of course it counts. It's yeah. Um, th th there's all kinds of great words everywhere. I, mean, I think one of the most powerful words is salam alaikum, which is hello or welcome in um, Arabic. Now it's powerful because everyone says it and you reply by saying the same word and it's on instinct. So I can walk past someone today, not in the Arabic world, and I can say that and they'll say it back to me before they even know that I've said it. So say it again. And salam alaikum, which is hello or welcome. And like if you walked into a room of just Arabs and you said it, every single person would come back and it's a chorus. Oh. Um, so it, you, it has power in that way. Oh, that's wonderful. What a wonderful, a, a nice way to unite a room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Favorite vacation. Oh, wow. I guess it wasn't Pakistan, although, you know, that was pretty fun. Uh, <laughs> isn't it amazing how vacations change yes. over time? I mean, right now, I'm just happy to get to Mexico because I can get to Mexico, but, um, Peace and I can't wait. <laughs> right. Exactly. I think I've spent a lot of fun times in Thailand and it was very relaxing. I got to say that Bali is a beautiful place to visit as well, or it was when I was there, but I was born on a small Greek Island, kind of like Mamma Mia, the, the movie or the, so I have a lot of happiness when I think of going back to various little islands in Greece. Oh, that's that wasn't one. A, sorry, that was multiple. Sorry, that wasn't <laughs> one. But boy, you've got us all dreaming about different right. places that we can go. Yeah, how can people reach you? People could reach me. Um, best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. So I can give you that link. But you know, I'll 
very happily set up a 15-minute um, conversation with people. Love meeting new people, seeing if I can connect into, into my network. Okay, why don't you um, say your LinkedIn profile and spell out your name yes. so people can um, find so you. So it is ooh, Nick Layton, N-I-C-K-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. So throw that on the end of LinkedIn.com. I think you're going to find me. Or just type it into LinkedIn. That's going to find me. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Nick yeah. Layton, L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. And the best website is exactlywhereyouwanttobe.com exactly where you want to be okay and so you can get the book we can get the book on amazon then get the on amazon or all good bookshops as they say fantastic <laughs> well nick thank you so much for being here today Dee, this was so much fun thank you i love the type of work you do and wish you much success as the world becomes a bigger and a smaller place it sure do. does it right? sure does Yeah. So thank you everybody for listening. You know, what really struck me in this episode was that everybody has a different tolerance for risk. And Nick is somebody who certainly can take a lot by being in a a hijacked helicopter and a high speed chase in Russia, but you don't have to have that kind of risk-taking ability to do global work. As, As he said, people are the same everywhere. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you know somebody who owns a creative agency, please share this episode with them because it might take some blinders off their, the way they think about marketing and give them a new resource when they've got questions about how to run their agency. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, really Take care. It's awesome. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.